Hello, Sarah Marshall. How are you doing? Hello, Alex Steed. Pretty good. Uh, it's Thanksgiving week, and I am eating a lot of instant mashed potatoes, so I'm ahead of the game. Ooh, la la. Welcome, friends, to You Are Good, which is a feelings podcast about movies. Today, we're talking about what, Sarah? We are talking about Raising Arizona, and if you want... I will yodel for you. Yeah, please. (laughs) That's good. That's really good. That wasn't exactly a yodel, but it was something very committed. Yeah, we are kind of talking about raising Arizona. (laughs) And if you are tired of your own loud family this year and want to be part of a different loud family, we are it. How would you describe... The conversation that's about to take place, the vibe, how it might fit into one's Thanksgiving week. (laughs) We started strong by attempting to discuss the movie. And then, much like the movie itself, we really wandered away from linear plot into kind of the joy of a series of just kind of random high energy excursions <laughs> talking about life and whether the Cohen brothers are depressed and then what depression feels like, but like very in a fun way. Yeah, I think so. I, I think often we talk about life as like these little detours that happen throughout talking about the movie as we say, you know, like this reminded me of this or this represents this or whatever. And I feel like in this conversation, we like adopted the tone of Coen Brothers movies. Yes. And then dove into our own lives. (laughs) Yeah. In retrospect, that's exactly what happened. I think that's a testament to the power of this work of art and doesn't bear on the ability of or inability of anyone in this room to stick to a subject. Agreed. Agreed. <laughs> uh, we've gotten a lot of absolutely lovely feedback on our, our Thor uh, Ragnarok episode, in particular from people who were like, I love that movie, but couldn't quite put my finger on the exact reasons I love that movie. And things that people enjoyed hearing about in their own experience was uh, references to the Jewish diaspora, to love for Christopher Reeve, Superman, yeah, and just uh, overall feeling seen by the identity of themes in that movie. So I, it's rare that we look back on our previous episodes and in, in intros, but uh, Fangirl Jean really brought it. Yeah, I'm so happy that people are responding to that episode and I'm so happy that fangirl Jean came and you know what she's like it's like when you like light up the Christmas tree that's what that episode is like (laughs) and you're not Clark Griswold so you put on an appropriate number of lights and you're like this is dazzling but not scary <laughs> this is such a weird holiday. Thanksgiving's such a weird holiday. Like it's the weirdest. We were just on American hysteria talking about mythology or the lack yeah. of mythology in, in American life. But like this is like the mythical origin story of the white country. Yes. Which the fact that I grew up learning the kind of fantasy mythological sure you can colonize us narrative of thanksgiving in the 1990s Mm. makes me feel like i grew up in the 1890s i mean really like yes sure you can colonize us (laughs) under the guise of friendship we brought a corn a literal cornucopia yeah you're welcome to be here yeah it was well god but that said that acknowledged do you have any you've lived in interesting places with interesting people. Mm -hmm. Do you have any specific Thanksgiving memories from your childhood? 
Thanksgiving for me has always been very stressful as a family holiday because it involved in some capacity needing to somehow cajole or subdue my abrasive, often drunk dad into being appropriate in a formal and or company setting. So it was like always a holiday that I approached with just like knots in my stomach. Mm. And then I started having Friendsgivings. And now I like Thanksgiving because it's like any holiday that as traditionally observed, like centers on having to somehow like perform being not as dysfunctional as you are as a family is like, don't do that. Just don't do it. Just get out as soon as you can. You're not going to master it next year or this year. It's just get out. (laughs) (laughs) And so one of my other Thanksgiving memories is getting pierogies at cop out pierogies in Etna, Pennsylvania, which is something that I always mm. would do when I had Friendsgiving with our past guests, Candace Opera and Patrick McGinty, in which I can't do this year, but where I always am in my heart for every Thanksgiving uh, forever. That's fantastic. I feel like a pierogi is a perfect thanksgiving food what about you what are your do you have some thanksgiving memories now that i'm thinking back on it i don't have any specific thanksgiving memories we were in maine my aunt lived close by and then my siblings lived in massachusetts and my extended family lived in massachusetts and so we were fortunately so busy trying to cover the real estate the family real estate it was actually difficult to have conflict Mm. and there were certainly like cold car rides and stuff, but like we had to get so many different places over the course of like 48 to 72 hours (laughs) that I think we were really saved from a lot of the drama that existed. The other like 364 days. That's so nice. It's like you got like a weird vacation from what Thanksgiving is really about, which is families gritting their teeth, trying to control each other's behaviors through telepathy. I do remember I did this very cringeworthy, this absolutely cringeworthy time where I did not realize my aunt Peggy, who I loved, had a stutter. Mm-hmm. I didn't realize she had a stutter and I made fun of her. Probably like I was really into stand up comedy as mm-hmm. a little kid. And I think I was trying to like make a like make a joke. And uh, that did not go over well at the table for Thanksgiving. I will say I was like eight. Yeah. And you were like, it's the 80s. I've been socialized to believe that pointing out anyone's differences in a disparaging way is the backbone of comedy. This is how far we've come. Exactly. Being scolded for that and watching my aunt's face drop Mm. and being scolded by my father is a pretty defining Thanksgiving moment. But on the other side of that, last night. In Nashville, Carolyn and I went to go see, you know, what is many people's Thanksgiving tradition. We went to go see uh, Martin Scorsese's The Last Waltz. I had no idea that this was a Thanksgiving thing for people. Was that? It was a Thanksgiving show. Yeah. Okay. Wow. That's so nice. We went to go see uh, see it in a, I'm not going to say a packed scary theater. And I really appreciate all the precautions the Bell Court takes to make sure that it's a, a, a safe experience as possible. But it was nice being in a theater watching people in a theater. <laughs> yeah, just people sweat on coke. It was really nice. <laughs> like from from 40 years ago, just people seeing sweaty, sweaty coke fiends sing delightful songs. Yeah. Is Joni Mitchell there? Oh, yeah. It was just beautiful. It's so crazy because Joni... Everyone looks so specifically on their drug multiplied by their personality. 
and so many jaws are just clenched. Like, I mean, it's like, it is drugs. Like, it's the drugs the whole way mm-hmm. through. You can't understand anything Martin Scorsese says. But then Joni Mitchell is on screen and sings Coyote mm. and is so fucking beautiful and is smiling at herself and responding to just how like joyful of an occasion it is. Mm. You can tell she's such an angelic highlight and uh, the staples perform the weight with the band at some mm. point. And oh my God, it's like, it's just tears the entire time. Uh. So a wonderful contrast to the time when I was seven or eight and made fun of my unstutter. <laughs> yeah. And we talk about movies a lot. We we've never done a documentary, and that would be fun someday. But like, yeah, this is a nice moment to like feel thankful. And if you grow up with a family you're trying to avoid, you're probably really thankful for the gift of film and everything it does. And one of them is like preserving moments, you know, like concerts that people would have been at at the time and would have been like, oh, it was amazing. You should have been there, and making it so that you can in some way be there and like. This is a weird moment that we're alive technologically, but like there's there's some good stuff here and that's one of them. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, it is. It is. Do you have any departing thoughts to our friends as they enter this episode and then enter the holiday season? If your family makes you feel sad, then consider making a new one. It's not your fault. The cranberry sauce with the can mark on it is the best kind. Thank you. (laughs) Just a couple quick notes, my friends, before we begin. First, just for this week, this week only, and then no more. You, my friend, can be the owner of a skid row plant zaddy shirt inspired by our conversation about little shop of horrors maybe you heard that episode and you were like when they said they should make a shirt about that did they ever do that yes yes they did we have this beautiful skid row plant zaddy shirt check it out it's designed by our great friend Haley branson i love this shirt so much it's in the show notes again it's only available for a week you order it or you never see it again that's basically what's happening with this shirt You Are Good, a feelings podcast about movies, is made possible by you for listening. Thank you so much for listening, period. The end. We really appreciate it. It's made possible with some financial support by our friends who support us on Patreon. Patreon.com slash you are good. You can hear bonus episodes. If the Julie Julia episode is not out while you are listening right now, it's going to be out in minutes. We have two episodes that come out every month and it's just these fun off the cuff conversations that Sarah and I have often about movies, but sometimes it's just about what is on our brains. We've talked about death before. We've talked about dogs. You know, we talk about the human, the human experience, my friends. And You Are Good is also made possible with support by Knack Factory, K-N-A-C-K Factory, which is a commercial and creative video production company based in Portland, Maine, has an office in Nashville, Tennessee, though it does work throughout the easier United States if you need that sort of work made, produced, done, created, whatever it might be. If you need the sort of work that a commercial and creative video content production company does, get in touch with the folks at Knack Factory. As always, we have an episode-inspired playlist available in the show notes. Go into the show notes, click the playlist, listen to the playlist. People love this playlist, and I appreciate that. For the week, you can hear what is going on in Sarah's and my brains and hearts uh, by way of music. You know, quick FYI, if you're trying to keep up with what movies you should be watching to 
be ready for this show. Little Women 1994. That is next week's episode with our friend Jamie Loftus. Oh my God, what a delightful conversation we had with Jamie. So if you're looking to keep up and be ready and come into next week's episode, just ready to go, check out Little Women 94. All right, let's talk about Raising Arizona. Let's get our yodel on. My name is H.I. McDonough. Call me high. And Ed felt that having a critter was the next logical step. But the doctor explained that her insides were a rocky place where my seed could find no purchase. We are doing the right thing, aren't we, high? I mean, they had more than they could handle. But don't you think his mama will be upset? I mean, overly? She'll get over it. She's got four little babies, almost as good as this one. Repeat offender. Not a pretty name, is it, high? No, sir. That's one bonehead name, but that ain't me anymore. What if the baby gets sick, honey? Even if he don't get sick, he's got to have his dip tat. He's got to have his dip tat, honey. You son of a bitch! Better hurry it up. I'm a Dutch with the wife. It seemed like us. And it seemed like our home. If not Arizona, then a land not too far away. Where all parents are strong and wise and capable. And all children are happy and beloved. Maybe it was Utah. Hey, Sarah Marshall. Hello, Alexander <laughs> Steed. He's fine, he is. <laughs> this movie has so much yelling. And yodeling. And yodeling. <laughs> I feel like this movie could almost be on a quotability level of Anchorman, if the writing wasn't so good. I think it's like a cross between Anchorman and a novel by Faulkner that I haven't read because I'm scared of Faulkner. And that's why it's not quotable. I think I first saw this movie when I was about 11. And so I started freely quoting from it then, which I feel like probably fleshes out your idea of young Sarah. Yeah, So like, (laughs) It's like very quotable to me through repetition. You're a flower, you are. Just a pretty little desert flower. (laughs) Let's preserve this moment in pictures. I think describing this movie as Anchorman quotable through the screen of Faulkner is perfect. Yeah. I have read Billy and I think you're correct. I read Absalom Absalom once, but like nobody really reads that book. They just sort of like hack their way through it. (laughs) And at a certain point, it's just happening to you and you just accept it. And then and I and then I gave a presentation in class about how it had roughly the same plot as the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, because it always comes back to that for me. Another sliver of a younger Sarah. (laughs) (laughs) But when did you first see this movie? It's just always been around. Yeah. I don't recall the moment of first seeing it. But so like my first batch of movies, just the movies that I were just around Mm -hmm. were Ghostbusters Batman, Dick Tracy. (laughs) I don't remember acquiring the second batch of movies, but like those are the ones that sort of started to just be in my life all the time shortly thereafter. And Raising Arizona was somehow one of those movies. I grew up thinking of this movie as a comedy classic that everyone liked. And I think they did by then. But something I find interesting about the Coen brothers, and we talked about this in our bonus episode on Burn After Reading, is that like, I feel like most of their movies become classics after the fact. Mm. And at the time of the fact, I think most 
Coen Brothers movies have been received the way that like you respond to a small child walking up to you and handing you a bug or like a little bit of dirt or like chewed <laughs> food where you're just like, what am I supposed to do with this? What, why did you give this to me? And I think that was the response to this movie at the time for a lot of critics was just like, okay, like there's clearly a lot of skill exhibited here, but like to what purpose? I don't know how this movie was received and like where it lived in popular culture for a long time outside of the fact that like, I think I only ended up gravitating towards people who would have liked this movie. Hmm. Like, I feel like this is like, it lived with me very early on. And then I don't know how the people around me loved it, but I feel like my friends typically were people who would have ultimately received this well. What is this movie? Tell us what happens here. (laughs) I feel like it would be easier to just reenact it, just like recite the whole thing. So... My name is H.I. McDonough. You can call me Hi. We open with what I think is one of the great movie openings. It's like maybe 10 minutes worth of kind of introducing the characters in the world and the premise and the style of the whole thing, which is that Nicholas Cage is playing a guy named Hi, who is in and out of prison a lot because he holds up convenience stores, never with a loaded weapon. So he always gets a relatively short sentence has a meet cute with a police officer named Edwina played by Holly Hunter, Ed for short, when she snaps his mugshot. So the opening montage is him going to prison, getting out, getting arrested again, meeting Ed again each time and their relationship progressing that way. And like all the banjo music, by the way, and then them getting (laughs) married and deciding to have a baby (laughs) and finding out that (laughs) Although she looked as fertile as the Tennessee Valley, the doctor explained to me that her insides were a rocky place where my seed could find no purchase. (laughs) (laughs) And then the Arizona Quince were born to a woman named Florence, Arizona. She'd been taking fertility pills and she hit the jackpot. It is like so hard not to quote from this movie. I can't believe I remember this very specific dialogue this well. And... They decide that since the Arizonas have more than they can handle, then they're going to go from each according to their ability to each according to his need. And High goes and grabs a baby, probably Nathan Jr., definitely the best one. And that's how we get started off. And then, basically, and it's funny because the movie then, the consequences of that act. Like things get progressively more chaotic every 10 minutes, basically. And so High's friends, John Goodman, before he was John Goodman, and a second guy. William Forsyth. Break out of (laughs) William Forsyth. Babyface William Forsyth. (laughs) Babyface William Forsyth. Break out of the Maricopa County Correctional Facility and want to stay with High, and of course, they have a baby now, so things have changed. And it's a tension between trying to live life respectably and be a father, and your past trying to pull you back, and the fact that you obtained this baby by doing something, you know, quite criminal. It's I f- it's hard for me to describe the plot from here, because it feels like, like chaos just wants to happen, basically. But so... High's friends figure out who the baby is. They decide to grab the baby. Meanwhile, the Arizonas have hired a warthog from hell 
bounty hunter to get the baby back. A baby bounty hunter. A baby bounty hunter <laughs> whose mama didn't love him. And we know because he has a tattoo that says that. And he and Hi also both have, is it a Woody Woodpecker tattoo? Yes. And I've always been fascinated by like, by the relationship between these two and what that's about. So everyone is trying to grab this baby, basically. Inevitably, we have to bring up that the Coens were friends with the Raimis, and you can see a lot of evil dead type touches in this movie, especially the way the camera moves as we like push through the landscape and up a ladder and into the Arizona household to see Florence, Arizona scream. Like that's a total Mm. evil dead moment. I love that so much. And the actress who played that role, I read an interview with her where she was like, yeah, I decided to do something different than the typical horror movie thing. I did like an operatic scream. (laughs) And that was what (laughs) they went with. (laughs) And then we also, of course, have Francis McDormand and Sam McMurray, running around and causing mayhem. Everyone's causing mayhem and high is cracking under the pressure. His tension release is robbing convenience stores. Like he does it to get by, but I think he also just kind of needs it. So we have probably my favorite chase scene is him holding up a convenience store to get some huggies Mm. and then having to lead a chase like through people's houses carjacking a guy a bunch of dogs get loose and are running around in a parade like like it definitely has a plot like everything is figured out but it feels like a series of wonderful set pieces to me but the ending is that you know they have the final showdown with the baby bounty hunter they are triumphant they emerge from the chaos with the baby and are like we gotta return this baby and bring him back to the arizona household (laughs) And then Nathan Arizona, in a way I never would have suspected, like does them a solid and is like, you should stay together because their marriage is also very much on the rocks at this point. And so it's about basically the consequences of stealing a baby and then being forgiven for stealing a baby. I think it's an incredibly sweet movie. And then we end with high having a dream. I'm going to get weepy. What's wrong with me? Of him and Ed having... Lots of kids and grandkids and a beautiful family and young Nathan receiving gifts from them over the years and everyone's happy. And he's like, but it it seemed like a place like Arizona where where all the children are loved and <laughs> maybe it was Utah. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Yeah, it's so oh, it's so great. You know, you know what I realized this time that I never that I don't think I've ever realized before is like this feels like the most political Coen Brothers movie. Oh. It feels like at some point the Coen Brothers decided to not say anything even close to representing a political or partisan lens. Yeah. And this movie doesn't really and we talked about this again in the the bonus episode we talked about with um, burn after reading like that it's politics are just nihilistic at the end of the day that that Mm -hmm. that is about looking at entire systems and just going like what the fuck the reason i bring it up is because i found it funny that like nathan arizona and this does them a solid at the end because i see him as like a stand-in for reagan in a really big way and like there's that Mm, part at the beginning there's the part at the beginning of the movie where, where High essentially says he's talking about how it wasn't easy getting out of jail, especially with that son of a bitch Reagan in the White House. Yeah. 
That's some bitch, Reagan. Some bitch. It, I, I was trying to, I actually spelled it out and I couldn't figure out where to put all the N's. Um. Yeah. <laughs> I would just spell that S-U-M-B-I-T-C-H. Some bitch. Yeah. So like there's that. And then when the, when they steal, no, the, the car that John Goodman and William Forsyth steal have two Mondale and Ferreira stickers on it, which is really funny <sighs> to me. Yeah. In, in that like agnostic way that, the Coen brothers will eventually kind of take with regard to everything. High essentially addresses the audience and says, I don't know where you stand on what prison, like I'm going to butcher it, but like, mm-hmm. I don't know where you stand on what like prison is for. Is it, is it for revenge or for redemption? Yeah. This movie is extraordinarily sympathetic to just like how much prison sucks, how much work sucks after you get out of prison. And mm-hmm. also just like, how much being a person in the world can suck and feel like the cards are stacked against you. Yeah. Yeah. And then I saw just because like from the gate, he talks about Reagan in that context and Nathan Arizona is a, is a man who is full of a lot of hot air and talks on television on a regular mm-hmm. basis. Mm-hmm. And oh, kind God, of like you're right. a cowboy badass. I was like, yeah, this guy, I think he might be Reagan. I'm not entirely sure, but I totally buy that. Yeah. Cause he and his wife have such like also some like Ronnie and Nancy energy yes. because like yeah. she's the sensible level headed one who wears frilly blouses. Yes. yes. I once read a book of love letters between the Reagans, <gasps> which is really quite sweet. And Ronald Reagan called Nancy mommy, which I think is relatively well known. And also occasionally mommy poo pants. Oh, wow. Wow. I, wow. <laughs> mommy poo pants. Yeah. Who are we putting in charge of the country for eight years and Holy why? Like, shit. I. Oh, and there's a story, too. This is a different book. This is a book about the, all the movies that the Reagans watched while he was president. Allegedly, I don't believe this, but this is the story in this book. <laughs> they decided to do their big anti-drug just say no to drugs campaign after watching nine to five because <laughs> there's a scene where all the gals smoke pot didn't the, i knew that they watched nine to five in the office i didn't realize that that was a, a domino falling right because like if three women smoke pot one time and then dabney coleman ends up kidnapped and held in S&M captivity. And maybe Reagan was like, it could have been me. <laughs> yeah. An upstanding man, like the boss in 99 to five as portrayed <laughs> by Dabney Coleman. <laughs> that must have scared the shit out of him. <laughs> right? It's like, oh God, we gotta, we gotta make sure to make marijuana, you know, stigmatize it even further, or else these women are gonna institute houseplants and childcare in the workforce. It can't happen. I don't know if it's true, but let's take it. Let's. It is true. <laughs> this is Mommy Poopans, partner of Mommy Poopans, talking. Of course. <laughs> I also find it that the Coen Brothers' first movie was Blood Simple, which is like deeply about Texas, or at least trying to be like mm-hmm. the whole like every line of dialogue could just be like Texas, Texas, Texas. And then this is an Arizona movie. So we're in the Southwest, but we have characters with Southern accents. And I think we're still in this kind of cowboy world. And I also find it interesting because we did an episode about Fargo with Clementine, because like, I think maybe it takes a while to talk about your own regionality, because the Coen brothers are 
Twin Cities boys. Mm. And they do get to Minnesota eventually. But I was wondering what you think about them starting off with like these intensely regional movies, but about another region and then maybe gradually working toward their own region. I mean, that's a that's a great observation. The idea that they needed to try on these other clothes before they could try on their own. Yeah. What stands out to me when you bring up Blood Simple, we've talked about that in other contexts. I love Blood Simple so much. Um, And what stands out here and what stands out with Fargo is like, you know, with the Coens, it's like they're it's cowboys all the way down. Yes, it, I love that. It is <laughs> it's cowboys all the way down. It's American nihilism all the way down. I don't find it to be like a cynical nihilism. It's a very bleak nihilism. But like sometimes at the end of the movie, high can be having a dream about a bright future. The spin on the nihilism is you think that it might have a point, and then he is confused as to what the actual location was. So if you were, if you were thinking symbols meant anything, they don't mean anything. Cause it could have been Utah. Yeah. <laughs> right. I mean, we're still in like the, the sun drenched West. That reminds me actually, there's a story about the closing or one of the penultimate scenes and the good, the bad and the ugly, which is the ecstasy of gold sequence, which mm. is where we get that amazing music and it gets really Like, it's a big moment. It's like operatic singing and the ugly has to basically run through this graveyard looking for the correct gravestone to find the treasure. It's like this very epic moment. And apparently to keep it from getting too epic (laughs) at the beginning of this sequence, they released a dog who just kind of like runs through the frame yelping. (laughs) And they were like, that's better. That (laughs) takes the edge off. It's just like a little dash of vermouth or the opposite of vermouth, I guess. And I feel like the like, maybe it was Utah moment is like, we can't make this totally sentimental. We have to end with a laugh line. But like, yeah, we want good things for these, these cute kids. <laughs> it's such a beautiful way to get there. Yeah. They strip the on the nose sentiment by confusion about geography in a dream. Yeah. A cheaper way to do it is whatever. We find out they die in the end. Like, I don't know. There's like a there's a cheaper right. way to deliver upon their, you know, what feels almost like a commitment to believing that there is no pinnable meaning. <laughs> I feel like the classic way would be for like Ed to be like, I'm pregnant. Who knows how it even happened? But it it did. Sometimes when you give up on conceiving and steal a baby and then have to blow up a guy, you got pregnant. You hear right. about it in magazines. Yeah, 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 yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> or like, yeah, or she or she takes the uh, the weird convoluted back in the day at home pregnancy test where she has to stir a bunch of fluids and wait in the bathroom. And then the camera cuts out before we find out what the actual situation is. Yeah. But tell me more about that take where you where it feels like they had to spend some time in other regions before they could get to theirs. Hmm. I feel like a serious man feels pretty on the nose autobiographical because they're talking about, you know, this crack up of a guy who's an adult, a middle aged guy at the time that they would have been teenagers. But then they have like the character of the teenage son who's like getting right. high and listening to Jefferson Airplane, which like <laughs> I am pretty sure that's what they were doing. <laughs> to me, there's also an interesting progression in the figure of the like interestingly literary drifter who just kind of like has a way with language 
speaks in very idiosyncratic and poetic sentences, which I think there's a parallel between this and the big Lebowski Mm -hmm. as well. Just like someone who kind of (laughs) gets buffeted around by other people's wins. Like you marry this girl you love and she wants you to steal a baby and you're like, okay, Um, (laughs) yes, I will steal a baby. I normally just steal stuff in registers, but yes, we are moving up to babies. It's fine. I think about this too, I think specifically for myself, because I definitely went through a big Western phase of my own. And like, I don't think that my own writing is entirely cowboys all the way down, but that I definitely specifically had a phase of writing these like very surly heroines who were basically like cowboy types who just like didn't give a shit and they were rugged and like combing their hair with gasoline or whatever. Right. And. <laughs> and eating off of pitchforks <laughs> and <laughs> and just like you know i was listening to a lot of tom waits and this is this is my baggage i'm not saying that cohen brothers have this baggage but it, like if that's the kind of cowboys and roadrunners world that you're initially attracted to in your art like that can be a way of shielding yourself from like the pretty emotional and sensitive and vulnerable things that you want to talk about and then you get to something like a serious man which is just like really pretty zany (laughs) still but is about the kind of quiet desperation of living a pretty normal life in minnesota and how chaos comes into the home and makes you live at the jolly roger you ring up a serious man makes me think of like how much this and a serious man have in common, obviously, even though the geographies are different, but it's like being alive and getting through the day with the knowledge of what it's like to be alive and have to get through the day is, is an exhausting, is an exhausting task. And you don't even have to exaggerate it for it to feel like it's going to crush you in one way or another. And like the scene where like, I've been high, uh, 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 I've been HI uh, several times more than several times in my life where like you have to interact with other people. And in this case, it's like the Francis McDormand slash what's that guy's name? Um, the mm-hmm. actual actor's name. Sam McMurray Chandler's boss. Yeah. You just have to like be with those people for one reason or another. And like you yeah. can only observe them kind of from the outside of yourself and you have to make it to the end of the series of interactions in order to get free. Mm-hmm. And like, <laughs> it feels like you're trapped in your own existence because you're obliged to hang out with these people for whatever reason. And it's nothing to do with these people like there's nothing wrong with these people but the obligation of having to be there is enough to fucking drive you crazy i feel that those Polak jokes are a little bit yeah you know, the- <laughs> sam mcmurray is not the greatest but <laughs> yeah, totally. you're right you're right the Polak the Polak jokes are exhausting but I guess I would say like like M. Emmett Walsh is probably fine to work with, but there are just some days where you don't want to hear the like <laughs> carrying his head in one hand and his lunch in the other story because you've got issues at home and you just don't, it's just not the day for it. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So much of the Coen Brothers movies that I enjoy the most are about how if you're really paying attention and even if you're just half paying attention, it can be exhausting. Right. And I love any storytelling that's a that's basically like the human condition. This is like, what the fuck is this? This is a lot, right? Like, Jesus, people are going around acting like this is easy. It is not. 
<laughs> and it's really, I feel like it is like people trying to find alternate routes through being human. And I also, I mean, we're just, this is just turning into like a big, like Coen brothers, main character, bizarro party. But like, I remember in grad school wanting to like find an excuse to write some kind of academic paper called Margie and the dude. About. <laughs> I love thinking about directors working through ideas and dualities. We just talked about this with Jurassic park and the idea that Spielberg was making Schindler's list at roughly the same time. And you can kind of see some connections there. And I feel like Marge Gunderson and Fargo and the dude and the big Lebowski are also they're very similar plots. They're both about someone trying to kidnap their own wife, hiring the wrong people to do it, and that going awry. Like they're the same plot in some ways. It's just that one takes place in sunny Los Angeles and one takes place in the upper Midwest. Yeah. Um, and the consequences are as follows. But they're both, you know, in the end also about this like pretty peaceful lover not a fighter protagonist having to figure out how to understand the people around them who are very much fighters not lovers and how to understand why they're doing what they're doing and emerging unscathed as a result but i love this kind of trend of i mean and high is like that too you know he's a convenience store robber who never loads his weapon and that's why he always serves light sentences. Although I feel like today after the third offense, they'd be like, hi, we're sending you to prison for 1000 years. Yeah, it feels so quaint. Yeah, the way that his crimes are treated in this movie. It feels like a, a thousand years ago. Yeah, it does. And it's also very depressing to be like those Reagan days. Those had some <laughs> it wasn't that bad in some ways, not compared to where we are now. Woohoo. Yeah, absolutely. They were laying the groundwork. Yeah. So many of these plots come from like, how quickly does the chaos rack up around you if you're fundamentally out of step with the world that you're in? Right. And so in that situation, like who are your thread people? It's it's Margie, the dude, hi. Like these are people who are just kind of abiding. Uh, um. <laughs> Barton Fink in a, a different way. And yeah. then have to just like live in the world and be confronted by all of the elements of the world that are not abiders. Right. That's how I feel about um, No Country for Old Men, right? Is it's like there's the, yeah. the Josh Brolin character is like the dude multiplied by Die Hard slightly. You know, it's like <laughs> the dude with with potential like action skills. Yeah. The dude, if he had went to Vietnam as opposed to being the Chicago 7, me and six other guys or whatever. Yes, exa exactly, exactly. And then Anton Chigger is like the most distilled version of all of these things that you run up against in the universe like all of the right. is like the most distilled version of the parent couple that comes in pitches swinging <laughs> and has like a thousand <laughs> kids that are writing fart on your wall <laughs> i would love to see a standoff between like anton sugar and sam mcmurray it's <laughs> like your entire life this Penny has been waiting to come to you. And Sam McMurray is like, hey, you ever hear about the one about the Pollock who tried to rob a bank? <laughs> are Anton Chigger and this, and this guy on the motorcycle, are they, are they related? They must be related. Like, they're from the same universe. Yeah, I think that Anton Chigger's mama also didn't love him. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and, like, I got to watch No Country for Old Men again because I remember liking it much more than the book, but having beef with the book in this way where, like, I don't know. I've gone on a journey the past couple of years. I used to feel very strongly like anyone who's 
kind of coming up with this nihilist thinking about like people are getting worse. They're worse than before, which I think is, is a theme in at least McCarthy's No Country for Old Men. That has always annoyed me. I'm like, no, they're the same. People have always been the same. Calm down. Like most people are basically good and they just want to like take care of the people they love and watch their shows. And if they do horrible things, it's, it's not because of they're irredeemable. It's more complicated than that. And in the past couple of years, I've been sad and cynical for who can even remember why. <laughs> and then lately, I've been feeling like, you know, cynicism is a luxury. It's better to believe in people, not to believe indiscriminately in everyone, because then you're asking to be disappointed. But like, to believe in people in the way where you're not asking them to do more than they're capable of, but, you know, to not write humanity off in a way that seems easier lately. I feel like that's a great and apt criticism of McCarthy period. Like Mm. what I love the most about that movie, it's not like an overt Coen brothers movie. Like it's not slapstick in any way, but I very Mm. much feel their humor in it in a way that saves it. Yeah. People are like, you should watch the road. And I'm like, I will, I will like Brad wants us to watch the road. (laughs) I'll watch it, but I don't want to. Yeah. I feel bleak in the way that high feels bleak. I don't feel bleak in the way that like someone staring down sugar feels bleak. Right. I loved No Country for Old Men because it felt like there was like some touch of humor and it's you have to strain a little bit, but it still feels like it takes place in this universe. It's just a, a far, far, far edge of the universe. And it's made by people <laughs> who have always felt this way about people. <laughs> yeah. There's just something about the Coen brothers view of humanity that I don't think I quite share it, but I think I live in an adjacent neighborhood philosophically at least And this. Like, cause I mean, there's such joy in this movie, like that you could do the plot of this movie and you could do it pretty dark and somber or at least like, not like a roadrunner cartoon. And I, I think another thing about it maybe is that like most of the people in this are adorable. Like Nathan Arizona is adorable. Yeah. High and Ed are adorable. The Snopeses are adorable. And then even the bounty hunter, there's something kind of lost babyish about him, which is part of the text too. I wonder about them. I don't know much about them. I read occasional interviews and always sort of taken by whatever I read by way of the interview. And I understand that like some part of their center is like Talmudic existentialism. Like that's like kind Mm. of what they're dealing with in one way or another. And that we see that in a Mm. big way in a serious man. But I just wonder if they're depressed. Oh yeah. I think there's a lot of depression being drawn from (laughs) (laughs) all the pizzazz had gone out our lives. I mean, I was actually trying to explain to my mom just how I have felt lately. Like I, like my feelings have been smallered Mm. by the past couple of years. And like, I used to have bigger feelings than I do. And I was like, you know, the part in raising Arizona where he's shaving and he's like, all the pizzazz had gone out our lives and his hand just like (laughs) flops down. She looks like she's giving blood. Like her arms are in the the way where she's like giving blood and she's, she's sitting around like a messy room. Yeah, totally. And I, and that's the thing is like, it's not my philosophy to necessarily feel this way when like confronted with people in one way or another. It's not at all. I actually have like a shockingly sunny worldview a lot of the time, but like I just get exhausted when yeah, like half my life because I live in manic swings, Mm -hmm. maybe 40% of my life is me being 
absolutely exhausted by a situation that doesn't even need to be exhausting. There's no reason it is to be exhausting, but I'm just like, Emmett, I can't fucking listen to you tell this story. (laughs) I've got to drill whatever I'm drilling and be in my head and leave me be. And a lot of people in my immediate universe think that I'm like steely or curt. You know, because I'm constantly like if you're in my immediate universe, like constantly just like processing that to the point where like I feel exactly I I love that you say that I feel exactly like he looks in that scene where clearly they've hit they've they've hit some edge of their depression. The salad days have come to an end. (laughs) And that is like such beautiful storytelling, too, because it's like sometimes you're so sad that like you just have to steal a baby which is great mitigation in various <laughs> trials of the past 35 years. <laughs> I also like how recently, like, I feel like a lot, a big part of our friendship is you like very gently pointing out the obvious to me. <laughs> and one of those things recently was being like, you have manic swings as well, Sarah. You didn't even say it that way, but I was like, Oh, I do. Oh, I do. <laughs> Oh, yeah, that's true. (laughs) I have I have had it for a long time forever. Yeah, I didn't really know what it was until like 10 years ago. And then I didn't Mm -hmm. really start to deal with it until a couple years ago. And I don't think anyone could have told me. No, no one can tell you. I mean, no one can tell one. You just have to be like, here's what I go through. And it looks kind of like it. Like, is that a thing that resonates with you? Yeah, I think it's the only possible way. The weird thing about like mania and depression and like that you're going to say main. (laughs) (laughs) The weird thing about it is it operates. And this is something I thought a lot lot about when I had to stop drinking and doing drugs originally. Mm -hmm. I always think about it like that fucking parasite that cats get that makes them want to eat mice that have the that have the parasite in that you know what I like hmm. you know that parasite where like cats want to eat mice and mice get daring around cats because the parasite exists in them because then the cat will eat the parasite and then it'll go in the hmm. cat shit and it's like this like cyclical thing I didn't know about that how wild to be a cat oh my god it's the best I, I forget <laughs> what it's called but we'll figure it out at some point but the yeah I think about like substance issues and then increasingly because it's so tied to mental health stuff as the same sort of thing because often my mental health issues will kind of take control of my body and Mm -hmm. put me in situations where I don't have to acknowledge that I have it and I don't have to let people know that I have it and Mm -hmm. it's acting to protect itself by making sure I don't recognize that it's happening. Yeah, which is just like, you're not even a real virus. Like, what's your plan? You're not going to reproduce and like, you know, burst out of my corpse and end it like, what, why does it need to stay alive? What's it doing? It's, you know, I respect us. I don't respect it more. But like, I, I understand a stomach flu a little bit better right. than that in a way. Right. In theory, they all yeah. think that there's some hope for them and they're going to spread into some, you know, like whatever. The, the chest burster will come out and become a full yeah. alien. But like, And then depression will take over the entire <laughs> spaceship and then Wayland yutani can study it. <laughs> they can- <laughs> oh, shit. Maybe they could turn it into some software that makes everyone depressed and it's ultimately Zuckerberg. <laughs> And then Paul Reiser will need will go get more depression to study. 
I have a, I have a if raising Arizona question for you. Mm-hmm. Ed encourages stealing a baby mm-hmm. and then does a thing that I recognize in beautiful rationalization about being like, your criminal friends can't come over because we're like a, we're a proper people who don't commit crimes. Yes. What's, what's going on there? And do you recognize that behavior in other people? Cause I do. <laughs> oh yeah. No, I think that's like, I, I don't know. There's something about this couple that feels very real to me. And I think it's probably that, that like they, complement each other in that way where like she's a very compartmentalized person you know she leaves her law enforcement career after presumably her depression over infertility but like she's still a cop at heart and i think she has this way of rationalizing you know she's like don't come back here without a baby hi they got more than they can handle you know like i think she's just figured out like they said they've got more than they can handle we will take one of their babies everyone's a winner. It's fine. (laughs) Which like (laughs) the positive side of that is that I think that that maybe helps her to understand high's goodness, you Mm. know, because he's a lovely, loving person. I don't think people tend to think of their own behaviors as criminal, no matter if they freely apply that label to other people's. Right. How does that work? Is it because like, well, I wouldn't do something criminal. So if I'm doing it, it's not criminal. I recognize the exception here. Yeah. yeah. We're describing my father, basically. Yes. <laughs> and then, like, there's the whole thing of, like, she wants the mud covered and presumably sewage covered. I mean, they can't be smelling that great at this point in their lives. She wants the Snopeses to clear out because they're having decent folks over. And, of course, those decent people are the, like... I don't want to say swingers because there's lots of wonderful swingers in the world, but, like, yeah. They're smarmy. They're smarmy, yeah, and they have all these kids that, like, they don't seem to be treating that well, and they, (laughs) Dot says we have to have another baby because these ones are getting too big to cuddle, (laughs) so we went into an adoption agency on account of something went wrong with my semen. Um, (laughs) And I said, healthy white baby, five years, what else you got? What does he actually say about the world, which feels again like a Cohen motto? Like crazy world. Someone ought to sell tickets. Yeah. Sure, I'd buy one. <laughs> <laughs> totally. And it's like, it's this movie. You just you already bought it. <laughs> exactly. It's so good. <laughs> yeah. And then and then there's like there's some stuff happening with class there, I think, because neither this couple nor the Snopeses are like great house guests, but like Sam McMurray is High's supervisor. So, like, the, this is what decides decency in this worldview. You have to play along or else you're going to get fired, which I feel like a lot of yeah. people recognize in one way or another or feel in one way or another. I, I think this movie doesn't get enough credit as a Western. The beauty of it is maybe easy to forget. I was reading a retrospective about this in Arizona Magazine or something like that, where they were like, you know... <laughs> This movie made it look like the Tempe Phoenix area in the 80s was just like pioneer towns and rock formations. But like we were a big city back then. Did, did they, <laughs> right? <laughs> were we? 
So I mean, two things. One thing I I definitely want to just make sure I talk about before I forget it. Mm-hmm. My dad was a big like they have more than they can deal with, so we should have mm-hmm. some of it kind of guy. And he like mm-hmm. he would steal apples from an apple orchard in the night. How many apples are we talking? Resell amount of apples? No, he would not resell them. But he, we we would there would be times in our house, and we were poor. Mm-hmm. We weren't doing great financially, and but there'd be like in late September, we would have like several crates of apples because mm-hmm. the kids gotta have their juice. I realized in retrospect, my father stole from an apple orchard, and then later was just like, "What? They have a they have an orchard?" You know, like that was his whole explanation. I mean, I, you know, I'm I'm for it. I'm for it, Charlie. Yeah, he very much had Ed's take on things, and the other, I don't know if it's if it's Nashville in particular. Or if it's the moment, like the the moment that we're in. But I think like, you know, the 90s felt like whatever the 90s felt like. The quote, end of history and things are going great and there's a lot of money everywhere and there's wealth and the possibilities are endless. Mm -hmm. And then there was like, oh shit, no, it's like 9-11 and Bush. And then at the end of that, you got like this like rash of like new modern Western movies that were like... Hmm. No, America's still this. Like, America is still this. It's very interesting how the Western just, like, came back like gangbusters. Totally. To be like, it's been this the entire time and it's still this. And the reason I brought Mm -hmm. up Nashville is, like, driving in Nashville, again, I don't know if it's the place. I don't know if it's the moment in America. But I'm just like, oh, it's just always been a, like, weird, quasi-post-apocalyptic quasi pre-apocalyptic western and it still very much is i drive Mm -hmm. around here and just like look at the landscape look at people look at what's going on the other day we drove through a sea of glass that was just like there and i was like oh it's like (laughs) how'd that go for you i had to get a new set of tires (laughs) Uh we are just like in a fucking Western just with modern technology surrounding us. It's like Blade Runner. <laughs> Except it's not very rainy in L.A. Blade <laughs> Runner was like very optimistic. It's like about moisture. <laughs> Los Angeles is going to be a very wet multilingual city. And, and Raising Arizona was like, no, it is not right now. <laughs> this isn't a throwback. It's like America still is a weird Western. Yeah. What to you is the Western? How do you define that? It feels a little like a fairy tale. Yeah. You're up against it, whatever it is, and your chances aren't great. And you have to persevere and endure. And often there's some some trial of will. There's a sense of what the law is, but there's also a very there's also a hypocritical or ironic lawlessness to the way that like living within the legal parameters operates yeah and you somehow have to make that all work and often it doesn't go very well right and i feel like there's a consistent theme where the outlaw is the only one who's capable of a consistent morality yes yes which to bring in the good the bad and the ugly again it's funny that like that occurred to me just because i was just thinking about scene but like clearly the western ness of this it like was in my head too and there's it's a very long movie but you should enjoy it if you are a kid and you haven't seen it before it's a civil war movie too and there's a whole sequence about clint eastwood who is the good um and is an outlaw just like all our other main characters 
blowing up a bridge because Civil War soldiers have been fighting each side to claim it. And there's just this like endless loss of life continually about this like trying to gain this little bit of territory. And so he just blows it up so they can stop fighting over it. And there's a line, something like I've never seen, I've never seen so many men wasted so badly is the line. And Mm. just, yeah, this, I don't know. Westerns are so interesting to me. I think because at their worst and their least thoughtful, they're just kind of a way to reinscribe the most tragic and cruel American narratives of conquest and colonization. And the white man comes and takes whatever he sees or wants. And at their best, they're a way of questioning that by representing it and trying to find, again, like a way of existing in America that is somehow moving outside of the American system of morals and into like an actual something truly ethical. I mean, that's a phenomenal point in that it's like the mass market Western is about reinforcing the American creation myth. Yeah. It was chaos. We rational white men came and created order. Yeah. We did it through strength and we didn't want to have to use that strength, but we used it when we had to. But like we really just tried to put our best intellectual foot forward and we created we created order out of chaos. You know, the good, the bad and the ugly and like all of the great Westerns are movies made by Mm -hmm. people looking in at America. Right. And often by Italians, which there has to be many reasons for that. Yeah. Right. Or like the revisionist Westerns or like even like Unforgiven. It's like Westerns that were able to go, you know, were ultimately able to subvert the fabric of the genre and then say mm-hmm. like, yeah, it's, it's a kind of actually about this. Um, but I think like the important thing, whether people intend to or not, is like the Western in one way or another is about is about like that liminal space that the line between the law disorder and outlaw or like sort of like the Mm -hmm. space of the outlaw and finding something in there. And of course there is a real cowboy in, in uh, the big Lebowski. Like it's, it's not even a subtext. It's just text. (laughs) There's just a freaking cowboy. (laughs) I spent a lot of time with it last year in the, the throes of the, early part of the pandemic but i watched three and a half seasons of fargo of the show Mm. i think it's phenomenal i think it's fantastic i didn't often if i love a thing like i still haven't finished bojack horseman i'm i'm Mm. one half of a season away like sometimes i emotionally can't finish it i never finished buffy i have had the second half of the seventh season on hold for seven years (laughs) i'm the same i'm the same often like often i will just stop a several episodes before it's over and I'll just be like, I'll know when to deal with this. Don't go. (laughs) The the fourth (laughs) season is about the fight. Because this is what this is what like great mob movies are about, too. And the fourth Mm -hmm. season is about the black mafia versus the Italian mafia in the Midwest um, in the 20s Mm. and about what obstacles in a similar way to like what we see high dealing with getting out of prison, like what obstacles existed to legitimacy Mm. and the Italians at that point had already kind of 
at least started to make a foothold as it's presented in the show and as sort of mm-hmm. it kind of exists in history had already started to make a foothold towards assimilation of becoming white mm-hmm. in some cases through entrepreneurship and through entrepreneurship through organized crime and then the barriers that exist for the black organized criminals to like actually make that move mm-hmm. and you know, that's difficult subject matter to say stuff about America with. And I think it did a pretty interesting job. I haven't finished it. Mm-hmm. But I also feel like that is in one way or another, like what the Western's about. That's what this is about, is that it's mm-hmm. stressful to make it in one way or another. It can drive you crazy. And it can also just be your death mm-hmm. to just get to the next day. <laughs> legitimately and i love the the kind of overarching theme in a lot of mobster movies of like what is legitimate power and why and often the answer is well it's based on who's wielding it Mm -hmm. basically it's not what you're doing it's who are you as you're doing it like i'm reminded of um i think it's penny lane's line in almost famous that like famous people are just more interesting and i think the coen brothers would say that criminals are just more interesting Yes, absolutely. Yeah. No, I agree. We're such at like a weird, like America's not even trying anymore with the myth. No. The myth is done, is so done. It's not even just like, oh, we all know that this is, it just feels like it's not even trying anymore with the myth. And I think like that's kind of liberating in some ways to be like, oh, okay, like I'm not even going to pretend legitimacy is even a thing. Like anyone I don't like is in league with Satan. Coen Brothers movies are about like trying to live sanely in the inherent insanity of America. I guess insanity isn't the right word because lots of wonderful people are insane. Mm. Um, That's great. You know, trying to keep upright in the pitching and the rolling of the ship that is the United States. (laughs) And everyone looking at you funny when you're not pitching and rolling along with them. That's it. All right. Oh
that is it for this week's episode of you are good thank you so much so 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 much to carolyn kendrick for being our wonderful and illustrious producer our music director for making this episode sound so good for employing your many talents and skills we are thankful for you we uh appreciate everything you do you are wonderful you make this whole thing sound great you can hear Carolyn's music, including her latest record, The Music of You Are Good, Volume 1, at carolynkendrick.com. You can find it on uh, uh, your streaming service. You can find it on Bandcamp, but go to carolynkendrick.com, and uh, that will give you everything you need. Carolyn, by the way, did a little song for this uh, week's episode. It's Lullaby by The Chicks, just so you know what that song was. That is what you heard in your ears. Thank you so much to Fresh Lesh for providing the beats to our show. Lesh, we appreciate 
what you do and uh, the texture that you provide to this fine show. You can find us on Twitter. You can find us on Instagram at YouAreGoodPod. And uh, you can find us on Patreon at patreon.com slash YouAreGood. Thank you so much, everybody, for making this whole thing possible. Thank you for listening. We're thankful for you. I hope you'll come by next week and revel in the glory that is Little Women 1994 with Jamie Loftus.